Uh, Well, good morning and welcome, and uh, thank you so much for being here. Uh, We have a lot that we're going to cover this morning, so I want you to get your Bibles out right away. Uh, Acts chapter 6. We're going to start in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. We're going to finish in Acts chapter 7, verse 60. And so if you're any good at math, you know that there's at least 60 verses that we're going to do. Actually, it's closer to 68, 69 verses that we're going to be looking at uh, here this morning. And so a lot uh, to cover as you're getting your Bibles opened, let me, uh, let me start our time off here by posing this question, beginning to move us down the road here. You ever done something? You ever done something that you thought was honoring to God, uh, only to later realize that you had completely missed the very heart of God? Who, who's ever been there, right? Ever been there, right? Probably most, if not all of us, guilty at some point in, in time in our lives where we thought we were doing something uh, good for God. We thought we were doing something right, but in reality, just completely missed the heart of what God was after. See, the reality is, is that what happens for so many of us so often, there's this tendency uh, where we become fixated on the things of God and not on God himself. See, our hearts and our minds are drawn to things that are, are, are good things, they're right things, they're important things, but they're not God himself. And in fact, sometimes what happens is we let our love for these things, for these items, supersede our love for God himself. The title of the message this morning is Following God or the Things of God. And as we move through this passage this morning, I think we'll see this contrast between Stephen, uh, who no doubt was following God, and then this council who was wrapped up in the things of God, even though they missed the very person of God, even though it was so blatantly obvious. So where normally I would read through the passage uh, for the sake of time, um, I'm not going to read through the whole of the passage, maybe just a couple of parts here, but let me give you, let's just take a couple of minutes and and have at least some kind of overview so we know what we're uh, dealing with and addressing, and and so we're not totally lost as we uh, move through this. But if you remember last week... Uh, In the beginning of chapter 6, we were introduced to Stephen, and uh, Luke described him as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit in verse 5. Notice in verse 8, he tells us a little bit more about Stephen, and he says that Stephen was full of grace and power and was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Verse 9, there's some groups of people that had an issue with Stephen and tells us that they begin to dispute or argue with him. Verse 10, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Uh, And so, I don't know about you, but uh, old school playground rules, if you can't beat them, cheat in order to win. And so that was kind of the way uh, in which these guys went about uh, doing things. Uh, Tells us, verse 11, they secretly instigated men uh, who began to say things, right? It's kind of a smear campaign. Verse uh, 12 and 13 tell us about these false witnesses that they... Bring against him, and so they bring him into this council. The high priest says to Stephen, Hey, are these things so? And then, starting in chapter 7, verse 1, through the whole of, well, the majority of chapter 7 through verse 50, Stephen begins to uh, describe, uh, and, and really, in a technical sense, he's defending himself, though he's not really defending himself. In fact, if anything, he's exhorting and rebuking the hearers. And as Luke writes this, here's what I want you to grasp, because this will become important for us. As Luke writes this, he wants us to put ourselves in the position of the hearers. 
Oftentimes when we come to narratives in the scriptures, what we want to do is we, we put ourselves in the hero's role. I was reading about David and Goliath uh, just this morning. And how often do we come to that passage and we go, yeah, I'm David. I'm like David. I'm, I'm going to go slay a giant. I'm going to sling some stones at some enemy. And the reality is very rarely are you and I David. Okay. More often than not, we're Goliath. Uh, we're the Philistine army mocking God. Uh, sometimes we're Saul, uh, fearful and cowardly and not trusting in God. Sometimes we're David's brothers, uh, kind of the, the arrogant, obnoxious type, but not willing to act on faith. Right, our tendency is to come to this passage and be like, oh yeah, we're Stephen, I'm going to boldly proclaim, I'm going to tell him what's up. That's not how Luke writes this. Luke writes this in a way that we would put ourselves in a position to be the hearers of what Stephen is saying. And so as we move through this, one, one of the things I want you and, and myself to, to engage is to put ourselves in that place, in that position where we're hearing what he's saying and then beginning to pose ourselves or pose the questions uh, to ourselves is this true of me? Is this how I think? Is this how I respond? Is this really where my heart and my mind is at? So understanding that, here's in summary what Stephen tells us. He tells us, really it's an Old Testament overview, starting in Genesis 12, moving through to about Exodus 32-33. Uh, he highlights three prominent figures that show up in that particular part of the Scriptures. He highlights Abraham. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know Abraham's kind of a big deal. And uh, the promise coming to him. And uh, even what uh, Stephen describes is God had made a promise to him, but he said, listen, you're never going to see the fulfillment of the promise in your life. In fact, for 400 years, your uh, offspring are going to be slaves in a foreign land. Okay, intro, Joseph in verse 9. Right, And so where Abraham was the one where the promise came to, Joseph was the one that uh, led them into Egypt. 400 years they're there. And then Stephen tells us about another guy. You guys have probably heard of him. His name's Moses. Okay. And uh, Moses, of course, being the one who would eventually lead them out of Egypt into, well, not into the promised land. He got them close to the promised land, kind of a stone's throw away, uh, pun intended. And then um, uh, Joshua taking them in uh, to uh, the promised land. And these three individuals... And there's a couple of things that will become substantial about each person and why these three. Uh, But Stephen uh, summarizes his uh, defense, if you will, verse 49 and 50, and he quotes from Isaiah 66. He says, speaking of God, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And then this, I want to read these next few verses. Because he moves away from the explanation, and now he gets to the exhortation or the rebuke. And this is really where we'll come to here uh, in a few moments. And we'll start posing uh, these items before ourselves and asking ourselves the question if this is in fact true of us. But understand that up until verse 50, uh, everyone's tracking with him. Yep, 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 we're about Abraham. Yep, we're for Joseph. We love Moses. Uh, Isaiah, great prophet. And then this, verse 51. You stiff-necked people. Okay, can you see the smiles beginning to erase from the, the listeners and the hearers at this point in time? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised and hardened ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of your prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Speaking of Jesus here. Whom you have now betrayed and murdered 
you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And in that moment, right, response time. And so you can see their response, verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were happy and delighted and shook his hand and thanked him. No, that's not what it says. Look what it says. Okay. They were enraged and ground their teeth. And I'm like, ah, that's kind of what's going on here. Stephen, not really being the people pleasing type. Look at what he says. Uh, Luke tells us, verse 55, he's full of the Holy Spirit and he gazes into heaven. Whether he actually sees this, it's a vision, whatever, we don't know entirely. But he gazes into heaven, he sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Um, If you've got a crowd of Jewish individuals that are pretty fired up with you, probably telling them that you see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God is the worst thing that you could do. But that's exactly what he does. He's like, hey, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And if they were enraged before, uh, that's nothing compared to where they're at now. And so notice their response. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. I mean, it's like a bunch of two-year-olds. Right? Like, I don't want to hear it anymore. So fired up. Cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Verse 58, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Following God or following the things of God. Right, following God or following the things of God. Uh, four things this morning here. Let's just begin to move through this with at least some understanding. Hopefully you took the time to read through this uh, prior to... Um, our time together this morning. And if you saw that email, that's great. If not, I'll just tell you right now, I would encourage you every Sunday to read through the passage prior uh, to coming to church. That would be to your uh, benefit. Uh, But following God are the things of God. Four things. Here's the first thing we see uh, in chapter 6, verses 8 through 15, is, is we see an improper reverence for the things of God. Okay, there's an improper reverence for the things of God. There's, these are good things. Okay, they're good things. But they're not God himself. And so they start secretly instigating men and and they they bring these false witnesses. And I want to draw your attention to verse 13 because this is really critical for the whole of this passage in our time together this morning. Uh, They set up false witnesses who said... Now notice the accusations that they make. There's two things that they're really bent about, that that, that they really want to make sure that they communicate. This guy is speaking against these things. Look at what it says. This man never ceases to speak words against... This holy place, he's talking about the temple, and the law. He's talking about the law, the, 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 the scriptures. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. Right? I mean, I think we'd be all for people not speaking against God's word and all for people not speaking against the church. But let's just talk about these things for a moment and begin to see where they missed what God was really after. Right, an improper reverence for the things of God. First of all, the temple. Okay, understand that uh, in the Old Testament and prior to Jesus' death, the, the temple, that was the place that uh, the Jewish people believed the presence of God was encountered and engaged. That was where you went to meet with God. It was in a, in a singular, centralized location. If you weren't in the temple, you weren't going to be meeting with God. Now, what, what they fail to understand and where they begin to get sideways or go crooked was they began to think that the temple itself was sacred. Now, think about it. I mean, you know, I'm not much of a construction guy, but I understand that there's certain materials that you use to build. And so in the same way that they use certain materials to build the temple, if you really get down to it, we're talking about four walls and a roof. 
And I could take those very same materials and I could go build an outhouse, right? Indistinguishable in terms of the materials. That'd be a pretty fancy outhouse. Okay, but, but, but you, you get the idea. It's indistinguishable in terms of the materials. What made the temple sacred wasn't the materials. It wasn't who constructed it. It was who came and dwelled within it. It was the presence of God. It was that God himself was found there. And so where they got sideways and crooked is they traded the things of God for God himself. And so they started looking at the temple as the be-all, end-all, and not the one who would come and descend upon the temple. And they traded the very presence of God for four walls and a roof of God. And then the law, right, the law is like, well, Mike, those are the words of God. Right, they are the very words of God. But, but again, same principle. The words themselves are not inherently sacred. So let me just open up here, uh, flip to a particular place um, here in Exodus. Uh, here, how about this? Uh, the next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Now, what if I said, Hey, you've sinned a great sin. I just, just out of nowhere, I'm saying those words. You're saying those words. Maybe even good words, maybe true words, but they're just my words. And see, the distinction between um, the law, right, and, and them being sacred versus the one who spoke them being the one that makes those very words sacred. Now, what I just read is, in fact, sacred because it is, in fact, the word of God. All right, but I could take those same words, put them in a different context. That doesn't make them sacred. What makes them sacred is that God himself spoke them. And the people here trading the words of God for religious duties, obligation, and the rules of God. This improper reverence for the things of God, placing them in a position that they should not have been placed in. Now, listen, these are both good things. I don't want you to think that these aren't good things. But when a good thing becomes a God thing, that's a bad thing. Okay, let me say that again. When a good thing becomes a God thing, that's a bad thing. In a word, it's idolatry. And, and, and what, what's happening here, I mean, think about this. The, the, the people are taking the very things that are meant to direct us towards and draw us near to God himself, and they're replacing God with those things. They've allowed the means to become the end. And the problem is you and I do the same thing all the time today. We're no different. We're indistinguishable in this, in that we take the things that are meant to draw us to God, we put them in the place of God, and in the, pre- in the, the process of that, we miss the very presence and person of God. We take things that are meant to direct us to him, and we put them in the place of God. In fact, I started thinking about this. I mean, there's all kinds of things. Uh, worship, uh, giving, prayer, uh, service, uh, spiritual gifts, um, how we treat others. We go on and on and on with this. But in so many of those things, we take the action that was meant to direct us and move us closer to God, and we put them in, in, in a position or a place that they have no rightful place in being. See, we take the means and make it the end. Jot these two words down. Function and form. Function and form. Okay, the function is the why. It's the purpose. It's the philosophy of why we do what we do. So let's talk about worship for a minute. Okay, the, the function of worship is to, um, for, for us to ascribe worth and reverence and honor and glory to Jesus. That's the function. 
Okay, the form is how we do it. It's, it's the manner. It's the method. And so often what we do is we get fixated on the particular way of doing it. Well, you have to do this genre of music or only this genre of music, or you have to be really quiet or you have to be really loud or no instruments or lots of instruments. We can go on and on and on. And we get fixated on this thing. And we let the form take the place of the function and we're bent on that. Or here's one in my life. For, for me, man, some of the best times of prayer for me are come when I'm on a run or I'm swimming laps in a pool. Now, could you imagine if I stood up here and got all prescriptive on you and be like, if you're not running and praying, or if you don't get wet and swim laps and pray, then you're not really following Jesus. You'd be like, you are crazy, right? You've lost your mind. See, but that's what we do. We, we let the form supersede everything. Both form and function are meant to serve the, the greater purpose, which is to move us to the person of God. And they miss it. They're fixated on the temple. They're fixated on the law. They absolutely miss it. Unfortunately, we so often get fixated on a particular way of doing things that we too will often miss it. And it's in that that we're no different from these people. And so not wanting to make that same mistake, I think we have to wrestle through a few questions here. So just between yourself and the Lord, just begin to wrestle through these questions. First of all, ask yourself this. Do I have an improper reverence for the things of God that comes at the expense of a relationship with God? Do I have an improper reverence for the things of God that comes at the expense of a relationship with God? Second of all, have I let the things that were meant to point me toward him, have I let them become the focus of my heart and my attention? Have I lit the things, the very things that were meant to point and direct me towards God, move me closer to him? Have I let them become the actual focus of my life, the very things that I'm after? I was reading just this week uh, in the book of Philippians. I love what Paul says. You remember in Philippians 3, where he's, he, he's kind of laying out his spiritual resume about why he's just flat out better than everyone else. He's like, listen, here, here's, here's the summa cum laude of spirituality. It's me. And, and he's just dropping dimes on, on the standard of just how spiritual he is. And then he says this, after laying all that out, right, the context of all of his spiritual accomplishments, all the things of God that he's accomplished, he says this, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Okay, listen, listen, listen. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Say like, those things don't matter. They, just, they, they, they pale in comparison when it comes to knowing the person of Jesus. God help us. God help us that we would come to that place where it wouldn't be about the things. It wouldn't be about the stuff. It would be about the person returning to the person of God. And this substantial warning that comes to us because right, this group of people is going to do something pretty drastic. They're, they're going to kill a man. And they think they're doing God a favor. And they've completely missed his heart and they've completely missed him. And I wonder how often we do the same because we have an improper reverence for the things of God. Following God are the things of God. Notice this secondly. Uh, chapter 7, for verses 1 through 50, we'll deal with the whole of Stephen's defense, if you will. And really, we'll treat this more at a 30,000-foot view. 
but I just wrote this down, historically missing and rejecting God. Historically missing and rejecting God. Now, now keep in mind, right, the issue back in verse 13 of chapter 6, he never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. And so, so that was the accusation. That was the thing talking about uh, the temple and God's presence there and, and the law and God's word. And so what Stephen does is nothing short of brilliant because he's going to walk through uh, the Old Testament, demonstrate how the nation of Israel repeatedly failed in those two areas. They failed to recognize the presence of God. They failed to understand God's word and his law being played out in them. And then he's going to begin to connect for them that you as well are guilty of the same thing. And that you have failed to see the presence of God and you have failed to obey the word of God. And so notice, right, notice these things, three things in fact, um, where we see them missing really the person of God. Uh, first of all, they missed his presence. Right, they're talking about the temple, the holy place <clears throat> where the presence of God was found. And so notice what Stephen says, verse 2. Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me, right? He's from the outside. He's saying, listen, I'm with you. I'm for you. I'm not opposed to you, but you've got to know some things. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in... Okay, wait, we're in Jerusalem. Uh, help me out. What's that next word? Mesopotamia. Um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good with geography, but, you know, I, I've, I've been known to mess it up from time to time. Mesopotamia and Jerusalem. Are those like right next to each other? Are they close to each other? Nope. Okay, not hundreds of miles apart. But wait, it just said that God showed up here. Well, that's exactly that's the point, right? That God's presence showing up in Mesopotamia, right? Not confined. See, the, the, the whole point that Stephen wants them to understand is that, that the presence of God is not confined to a particular uh, place, right? We understand that the Spirit of God lives and dwells inside all who um, have surrendered their life and chosen to follow Jesus, and Stephen's trying to uh, draw that truth out within them, right? So here, right, we're in Jerusalem, and, and they understand that, okay, the presence of God is here. Uh, here's Mesopotamia. All right, now jump down to verse 9. Uh, the patriarchs, uh, jealous of Joseph, right? And so in, in verses 2 through 8, he talks about the promise of Abraham, and they're going to be sojourners, and they're going to uh, be taken out of the land and eventually come back in. So here, verse 9, here they're being taken out. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. And then this next phrase, love this. But God was with him. God was with him. Well, maybe that means that God was just with him, like giving him favor and, and helping him because we know that God was with him and it tells him that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that God was physically present with him. Anyone willing to jump out on a ledge and say that God is just going to go ahead and play the distant, uh, far off game for 400 years? Right, they're there for 400 years. You don't think God wasn't close? You don't think that God wasn't near in that time? You don't think that God wasn't speaking to his people in that regard? Yeah, I'm not going there. I think it means a whole lot more than God was just kind of helping him out. I think it means that God was physically present. So now we're talking about God being in Jerusalem. He's in Mesopotamia. He's uh, over here in Egypt. And now uh, go down to verse 30. Uh, Moses has shown up. Uh, they don't understand Moses' intent. We'll see that here in a moment. Uh, verse 30. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness. Moses had uh, fled uh, from Egypt in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. Okay, Mount Sinai. That's a mountain on the Sinai Peninsula down towards the southern end of the Sinai Peninsula. Right. An angel appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. Okay, here God's speaking. Verse 32, I'm the God of your fathers, God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Okay, so he's, 
in Jerusalem, and he's in Mesopotamia, and he's over here in Egypt. Now he's down here in Mount Sinai. See, they were fixed on the fact that there was a singular location for the presence of God. And what Stephen's trying to point out is, listen, there's never been a singular location for the presence of God. He goes on later, and in verse 44, they start talking about the tent of witness. And, hey, that's where Moses would meet with him. And then Joshua took that into the land in verse 45. And in in verse 46, they talk about David having the idea to build the temple. Verse 47, Solomon builds the temple. And you might even look at, at, at Abraham and Joseph and Moses and go, well, Mike, that's great, but that was all before the temple. Right, but notice verse 48 and following, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Okay, here, we're going to quote from Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah, a couple hundred years after the temple was built, Isaiah tells us this about God. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Heaven is my throne, all right? Like the whole of the heavens, yeah, that's where I hang out and sit. Uh, The earth that you live on, that's where I kick my feet up. He goes on, he says this, what kind of house will you build for me? Isn't that a great line? What kind of house are you going to build for me? The entirety of the planet that you live on is my footstool. What in the world are you going to build for me? Really? You're fooling yourself. What is the place of my rest? And then in verse 50, did not my hand make all these things? It's like, man, I made it all. You're going to build something for the creator of everything? You've lost your mind if you think you can build something that's going to impress me. See, they they missed his presence. They missed the very presence of God. And what's interesting about this Isaiah 66 passage, I want to flip here just for a moment. You're free to flip or, or just hang where you are. We won't be here long. But there's two things that Isaiah is getting at. And it's the same two things that Stephen's getting at. One is dealing, addressing this issue of the presence of God. And we just read verse 1 and part of uh, verse 2. Let me read the second half of verse 2 and following, because here's the other thing, and it leads us into where Stephen, the other element that Stephen is addressing. God says this, he says, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit, and here we go, and trembles at my word. And there's a fear of the word of God. Verse 3, he talks about he who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. Uh, he who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes mo- a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. What's he getting at here? Well, he tells us in verse 3, these have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Here it is. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. See, they missed the presence of God because they were unwilling to hear the word of God. And when you don't hear the word of God, you're going to miss the presence of God. See, these two things are linked. And so even the accusation set up brilliantly where where Stephen's going, well, yeah, you know what? Because you miss the presence of God, you're going to miss the words of God. And because you miss the very words of God, you're going to miss his presence. And Isaiah laying that out 200 years after uh, the temple, they missed his presence, missed the fact that God was not confined to a particular place. And that's because they missed his words. They missed what God wanted to speak to them. Right? God is speaking to the people concerning himself in this passage. He's telling them, don't you get it? Don't you see what I'm trying to tell you? Don't you see with Abraham and with Joseph and with Moses and with all the others, I am leading you towards something. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Verse 4, 
Maybe I would just ask you right now, are you hearing what God's saying? Are you hearing what he's leading us to? More than just some cute stories so we can draw some kitty pictures and have something to say about the Old Testament. Right? God's, God's drawing something out here. He's moving us to something. They missed his words. The second thing we see, they missed his words. Notice just a few places specifically we see this really highlighted with Moses where they missed it. Verse 25, speaking of Moses, uh, Moses, it says that he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hands. But they did not understand. In fact, later he goes to the two um, Israelites who are fighting and uh, their response to him is, who made you a ruler and a judge over us in verse 27. Then in verse 35, Stephen says this, he says, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? Well, Stephen's saying, let me tell you who we all know who God or who made him a ruler and a judge. It was God, right? This man, God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. God sent him. God was speaking through him. God had something to communicate through him. Verse 37, Moses even tells us himself, quoting from Deuteronomy 18, that God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. He's like, listen, someone else is coming. There's someone else coming that you're going to want to pay attention to. And really the crescendo of this found in verse 39. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. Say they, they, they missed God's word. They missed God's commissioning of Moses. They missed the prophet that was coming. And so it led them to the place where they simply refused to obey the one that God sent. And they missed Jesus because they failed to know and understand what God had said. They missed the presence of God because they didn't hear the word of God and they didn't hear the word of God. So they missed the presence of God. Now, when I, when I think about this, I think in one sense for us, we go, well, that would never happen to us. We would never do that. And you, some of you chuckle because you know better, right? You know that we're very capable of doing that. And I would just exhort and encourage all of us in a couple of ways. One, are you willing to hear? Just ask yourself, am I willing to hear the words of God? For Samuel 15 describes um, uh, Saul and his failure to hear what God had told him to do. You remember that? Samuel said, hey, you're going to go in. I want you to um, destroy the Amalekites. Like lay everything waste. And so, so Saul goes in and what happens? They're, they're, they're wrecking shop, but then all of a sudden, whoa, those are some pretty sweet oxen. Wow, look at those sheep. Those are really choice sheep. Let's hold on to a couple of those. Those are great. And, and so Samuel shows up, right? He's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And Saul's like, I did everything that you told me to do. And then Samuel's response is classic. He said, then what is this bleeding of the sheep that I hear? He goes, you didn't destroy it all. Saul Saul starts backpedaling. Well, I thought we could sacrifice. They'd be great sacrifices. He's like, no, you, you missed it. See, you did what you wanted to hear, not what God spoke. See, that's, isn't, isn't that our issue in the church today? We, we love the word of God so long as we love what it says. We get to some of those passages like, Ugh, it kind of rubs me the wrong way. Or, People aren't going to like that. Okay, am I willing to hear all of what God says? See, that's what we got to wrestle with. Am I willing to hear all of what God says? Not simply what I want God to say or what I want 
to hear? Are you willing to hear? Secondly, are you willing to study? Are you really willing to study all that God has for us? See, see, the, the, the joy in hearing from God and the scriptures is knowing and having a better sense of all that God is calling us to. And I, I got to tell you, man, it grieves me when I hear believers make statements like, well, I know enough. I, I know enough. I've, I've got enough of it figured out. What? You've got to be, no, you, okay, listen, listen, listen. You will never, okay, okay, for all of eternity, you will never, ever, 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 ever come up to me and have me be like, hey, you know what, the 66 books, I finally got them all figured out, man. Top to bottom, backwards and forwards, I got it. You're never going to say that. You're never going to exhaust all that this book has to say. You're certainly never going to exhaust all that the, the author of this book has to say and all that there is to him. Why would we ever come to the place where we're content? And God, God help us that we would repent of that, that we would not be content. God, God, teach me more and teach me more and God, teach me more. Lest I come to this place. See, I'm not willing to hear. I'm not willing to study. Uh, That's where they were. Look at um, what we see, verse 39 and following. Keep in mind, this is the history of Israel, but he's pushing his hearers to understand. I'm talking about you in this. Verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol. And then this is just repulsive. And were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Verse 42, But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it's written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? He's like, really, you brought me sacrifice? Here's what you did. You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephon, the images that you made to worship. And he just says there, in Amos 5, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. He's like, I'm going to cast you out. See, they rejected him. They rejected him. And when you, when you hear what you want to hear, you're going to come to the place where you're simply going to reject God. That's, that's, that's the trajectory. That's where you're going to go. If it's just about what I want to hear, then you're going to reject God. Okay, let's just stop here in this moment. And let's just do a little heart check. Just between yourself and the Lord, answer these questions here. In terms of rejecting God... Uh, First of all, is the presence of God something that I'm seeking out? Or is it simply the things of God? Am I about the person? Or am I just about the things? Second of all, do I read the scriptures to meet with Jesus? Or to increase in Bible knowledge stripped of any relationship? Maybe another way of asking this question is, why is it that you go to the scriptures? Is it because I have to, or is it because I get to? Thirdly, do I find myself coming time and again to the person of God? Right, really, this is getting at whether or not I'm praying and seeking God's heart, or am I simply looking for my own way of doing things? See, in the heart of, in the heart of, of a believer where there's little or no prayer, it's very easy to move to the place of just doing it my own way. But in the heart of someone who finds themselves constantly before the Lord in prayer, gets, you just can't do that with any honesty and integrity. Right? God strips that away of us. Historically missing and rejecting God. 
right? following God or following the things of God. So Stephen sums that up, verse 50, quoting from Isaiah uh, 66, and then here really coming to the, uh, the rub of the issue. I just, I didn't really know how to say it outside of confronting our own issues, right, and putting ourselves in the position to hear as these people heard. And uh, even though they're just stated or will show up on the screen as just statements, I want us to really pose these as questions to ourselves and ask, is this true of me? Is, are, are these things true of me? Are these characteristic of me? Does this describe me? So notice what Stephen says to the people, and really, uh, by way of application, the Spirit of God is saying to you and I, or posing them as questions here this morning, you stiff-necked people. Okay, my stiff-necked. Right, that's hard-hearted. You can't, you can't read that and not go back to Exodus 32, Exodus 33, all right, where God said, you are a stiff-necked people. And then what does he say next? I'm not going with you. It's because of that. It's because of your hard-heartedness. It's because you're stiff-necked that I will not go with you into the land. So just ask yourself, am I, am I humble enough to hear that? If it's true of me, am I willing to change? Am I stiff-necked or is I, am I like the psalmist who tells us that the sacrifices of God are a broken, and, a broken heart, a broken and contrite spirit? Oh God, you will not despise. My stiff neck, second of all, uncircumcised in heart and ears. Okay, keep in mind, this is a Jewish audience. For us, we read that and it's like, that's kind of weird and maybe even a little bit creepy. All right? But uh, keep in mind the context of the audience and what circumcision meant. See, that was the sign and the seal of God's covenant promise. That, that, that was the, the symbol, I'm in. I'm on the inside. I'm on God's team. I'm one of his kids. And what Stephen is saying here is, no, no, you're on the outside looking in. You've missed the heart of God. You've missed the person of God. You're on the outside. You're not on the inside. Your heart is hard. Your ears don't hear. And that hard, harsh word, uncircumcised. And where we would go, I think of Titus 3, 5, right? It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy that he saved us. Do we have an uncircumcised heart and ears? Thirdly, you always resist the Holy Spirit. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Man, I would love it if he said, you never resist the Holy Spirit. Uh, You always resist the Holy Spirit. Now, don't fight the tendency to go, well, I only do that sometimes. No, no, we don't want to do that anytime. Who wants to resist? Who wants to grieve? Who wants to quench the Spirit? Not I. Hopefully not you. And this next one, verse 52. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. He's speaking of both the prophets and guys like John the Baptist, right? Persecuting the prophets. And, and right, I think our tendency is to go, well, I didn't do any of that. I wasn't even around. You can't pin that one on me. Whoo, okay, pass. I passed that one. And persecute the prophets. No, you and I didn't persecute the prophets. We certainly didn't have anything to do with John the Baptist. Um, but we're just as guilty today. 
because we will hammer people that we don't even know based on some four-minute YouTube clip that we watched out of context and call people heretics and false teachers and all kinds of things. And I would just let me just caution you to be very, very careful about what you say regarding others, the proclamation of the word, and their motives and their hearts. Now, sometimes people say, well, listen, listen, you, Mike, you want to teach? There's, there's a higher standard, right? I, yeah, I can quote James 3. I got that. But the fullness of the word begins to speak into that. And that the weightiness of 1 Timothy 5, talking about not bringing an accusation against an elder, specifically a teaching elder, that's the context there. And that you should rebuke someone in that position only when there's persistent sin. I would just encourage you, I would caution you to be very cautious with your words. And think carefully about what you say. Not only that, that, that's not just for me. um, Because it's a little bit harder to do someone that you know face to face. We like to hide behind blog posts and online stuff and anonymous things like that. Where I'm never going to sit face to face with the person. And we're no different than these guys. Persecuting the prophets. All of these things really leading to the crux of the issue. Speaking of the righteous one, Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Right, the murder of Jesus. Let me read verse 53 and just kind of treat these two in tandem. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Right, confronting our own issues. Come to the place where I recognize and realize I'm the one that put Jesus on the cross. It was my sin that put him there. It was my rejection. It was my rebellion. It was my failure that put Christ on the cross. It's me who rejects the very words of God that I violated his law. Confronting our own issues. Now, now at this point, right, in the same way that the hearers have a particular way that they can respond, you and I have a particular way that we can respond. We can hear the word of God. We can, in, in repentance and humility and in graciousness, embrace what God has given to us and respond accordingly. Or, like these knuckleheads, we can get enraged and start grinding our teeth and then eventually take someone out and stone them. Okay? I, I, I would, I would uh, suggest neither okay, of those uh, latter options uh, there. But I think the beauty of what Luke writes here and how he writes it is where we see our issues uh, brought front and center And then what we see right after that is a returning to the cross. Because that's exactly what we see in the last part of chapter 7. Is is Luke, as he writes, Stephen, as he speaks, he returns us to the cross. And the truth is, anytime you and I come face to face with our issues, that's the only place that we should go to. That's the safe place for us is to return to the cross. And so let me just, uh, just two things, two things that I want to point out, right? They're enraged. They grind their teeth at him. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He gazes into heaven. Saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Jesus standing at the right hand of God. What, what, why would Luke tell us that? Why would he include that? Why would Stephen even say that? I mean, we know, we know that God is at the right hand, or Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. A number of places in the scriptures tell us that. Uh, Psalm 110, Hebrews 1, uh, Hebrews 10 tell us that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Uh, this is the only place in all the scriptures that we see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Why? Why would he do that? I think he was welcoming Stephen. I think it was a sign of respect. 
Let me just ask you, what dignitary, what, what uh, person in royalty stands up when someone else enters the room? No one does that. Hey, the president of the United States walked in the room, everyone would stand up. Regardless of what you think of our current president, you respect the office enough that you would stand up. See, here we have just the opposite taking place. We have the king of all kings. Wrap your mind around this. This is mind-boggling. The king of all kings who has, who has been incredibly patient and forbearing and kind and compassionate and gracious to a people who have continually and hard-heartedly rejected him. He's going to stand and welcome one of his own. See, that doesn't happen without the cross. That's not even possible without the cross. Now, you think about a savior that would do that. And I find that there's, there's great irony in that as Stephen is being rejected by everyone around him, that Jesus stands in approval. And there's something powerful in that. I love that. I love that. And then this. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. The witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, right? We've got someone else dying an unjust death. Now, as I read this, um, you, you tell me, I don't think it's pretty hard to arrive at the conclusion where Luke is drawing us. But doesn't this sound a little bit like someone else? Doesn't this sound like a little bit like something else we've seen somewhere? Stephen called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Okay, tell me, loved ones, who does that sound like? Sounds like Jesus. An awful lot like Jesus. You think that was an accident? You think that was random? You think that was a mistake? No doubt, no doubt, no doubt. Pushing us right back to the cross. He's like, listen, you got to understand something. You got to see something. That even in the midst of these people's failure and their sin and their rejection, the grace of God still trumps and triumphs in this. That's what Luke wants us to get. That in the returning to the cross, that the compassion and the mercy and the forbearance of God overcomes the sinfulness of man. That's what he's moving us toward. That's where he's pushing us to. He's like, come back to the cross, return to the cross. But I love this. Right, Jesus, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But notice what Luke says. Luke says, Lord Jesus, verse 59, verse 60, Lord, he's speaking, Lord Jesus. Right, the very one that they're killing him because of is the very one that offers the forgiveness of their sins. And here's Stephen crying out to Jesus. And I love the, the, just the, the, the poignancy of this moment. Can you not see that contrast? There's such a stark contrast. What it is to follow God and what it is to follow the things of God. Stephen giving up his life willingly because it's totally worth it. I mean, mean, could you imagine the last thing you see on earth is the son of man standing at the right hand of the father? Kill me now. I mean, he'd probably be disappointed if he wasn't killed, honestly. And they'd be like a mad, no, no, throw a few more rocks. Come on, just finish the job, man. Don't leave me like this. I've seen all that I need to see. See, what it is to follow God. And then what it is to completely miss that, to follow the things of God. Thinking, thinking, thinking I'm doing God a favor. Thinking that I'm doing something right. But I couldn't be any further from the heart of God. See, where we would return to the cross where we would return to the cross.
Loved ones, can we be done missing the person and the presence of God because we're fixated on the things of God? Can we just get back to the relationship? Can we get back to the person? Can we get back to the foot of the cross? Can we get back to Jesus? And then out of that, let these things flow forward and quit playing this game. Returning to the cross. Returning to the cross. I can't think of a better way to do that than to literally return and remember Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection through communion. So we're going to return to the cross. Let me just frame our time together briefly in this. No doubt, no doubt, all of us have sin that we need to repent of and seek to be made right and all of that. But no doubt all of us in some way, shape, or form have let the things of God replace the person of God. And so in these next few moments, we'll release you, have you grab the elements, take them back to your seat. But in these next few moments, as you just reflect and get before the Lord, would you just ask God, God, what are the ways in which I have replaced you with the things of you? What are the things that I have allowed to take your rightful place in the throne of my life? Now, while they're good things, they have no right or no bearing of being there. We just begin to wrestle through those things. Faith Church, we uh, practice open communion, which means you don't have to be a member. You just have to be a follower of Jesus. And so as you come, we would just grab the elements. We have a gluten-free option um, up front. Uh, We'll have the very middle aisle and the two end aisles maybe come forward. Uh, The two kind of in-between aisles head uh, backward, do uh, the one-way traffic thing as best as possible. Uh, But why don't you grab the elements, just take a few moments to reflect, and then we'll partake together uh, corporately. But let's come to the communion table, remembering the one who paid it all. Come, loved ones.